turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, and praise God, we are in a new chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 to 13. Verses 1 to 13. Follow along as I read. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the living God. I remember the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe that I had missed it all of these years. I had looked at it countless times, but I'd never seen it. I'm talking about the FedEx logo. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen the symbol in the FedEx logo. Uh, this is the one time I think I'll, I'll give you permission to, to look at that if you want on your phones, you know, during the introduction of the sermon. Uh, I remember the first time someone showed it to me, and I, I said, they said, how have you seen the symbol in the FedEx logo? And I said, what symbol? I mean, my dad worked for FedEx for over 10 years. I didn't know this. And so they, they pulled it up, and they showed it to me. If you look closely between the E and the X, there's an arrow that points to the right. I I may have changed your life. This is like a Copernican revolution (laughs) if you haven't seen it before. Now, the funny part about this to me is that the symbol is an arrow. It's pointing. And yet, in my experience, most of the time, people have never seen it before. They've been oblivious to it. Yet it's right there. And it's pointing. It's an arrow for a delivery you know, company. How appropriate. <laughs> the arrows embedded in the, within the text pointing 
Now, there are times when something can be in plain sight, and yet we totally miss it. We totally miss it because our focus is somewhere else. It's upon what? The letters. And the arrow is in white. So you're not accustomed to looking at the white part because you're looking at the letters that are in color. And so you miss it. And I believe that can happen in the passage that we have before us this morning. The main point of the passage can be missed for another legitimate point that's there, but isn't the main point. And I think that often happens. The main point for many in Luke chapter 4 is simply that Luke is giving us principles on how we can, as Christians, avoid temptation and uh, principles for fighting temptation. Now, are those within the text? Absolutely. There are principles for how we can avoid temptation. Is that the main point that Luke has in including this in his gospel at this point? I would say no. That's not Luke's main point to teach us lessons about temptation, though they're there. I would say, though, that there are many arrows, so to speak, in the text pointing us to the main point of the text. I showed a friend of mine after discovering this amazing discovery of the FedEx symbol. I, I showed a, a friend, and they told me sometime later, I can't not see it now. Like, every time I look at it, that's what I see first. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, it's FedEx, you know. I think that may be the case for us as well, and it has been for me with this passage, that when you start to see what Luke is doing and how he's pointing to, through the text, what he's trying to get across to us, it will be hard for you to unsee this. In fact, yes, you'll learn the principles of uh, temptation for your own life, but you'll see it within its proper context, within the right main point of the text. And I think you will appreciate what Luke is trying to do that much more. That's been the case for me. I, I can't look at this passage and not see what Luke is trying to do now in this passage. Now, Luke's point, though there are principles for us on temptation, is to show us that we have a Savior who has been successful in his temptations, we have a Savior, therefore, who can represent us and who has obeyed for us. Our first representative, Adam, failed when he was tempted in the best of circumstances. Here we have another representative for the human race, Jesus Christ, who succeeds and triumphs in temptation in the worst of circumstances. The primary purpose of this text is to highlight the representative work of Jesus as the better Adam, but not only as the better Adam, but also as the better Israel and the better David, who succeeds for us as a substitute. Now, what we see in the temptations of Jesus that really set them apart and would make us should make us not first go to, how does this have to do with me, is that none of these temptations are temptations that you will ever be tempted with on the surface, right? Satan is 
probably not going to tempt you to create bread from a stone. Or he's probably not going to offer you all of the kingdoms of the world if you'll worship him. Or probably not tempt you to jump off of a high place with the promise the angels will catch you. These are unique temptations to Jesus. And yet, at the same time, each of these temptations is very representative of temptations we do in fact face on a regular basis. In fact, they parallel the kinds of temptations that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. And that John, in 1 John, says and describes as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three temptations that Jesus faces. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that those are the very ways where Adam and Eve were tempted. In Genesis 3, verse 6, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And so we see this pattern in Scripture uh, and in temptation of these categories of temptation, these categories of sin, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So while Jesus' temptations on one hand are unique to him in what is being uh, said to him, they nevertheless are very universal in that they tap into the very ways of that original temptation and mirror, in many ways, the kind of temptations we continue to face. Yet there's another layer to what's happening in this passage, and it is the way that Luke points us to other times in history when significant individuals were tried, and he's highlighting that for us. So we'll see how Jesus is a better Israel as he connects Jesus here in this temptation in the wilderness to Israel wandering in the wilderness. Not only that, Jesus is a better David. As David wanders in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul, and is tempted in some of the same ways as well. And then we see as well that Jesus is the better Adam, who, when tempted in the garden, sinned, and it led to the condemnation of the world. We see this one who obeys and leads to justification for all those who are in him. So, with that said, and some of those foundations laid, let's look at these three temptations together and see the strong man, the strong Savior, Jesus Christ, who stands as our representative, giving us hope that he is qualified to be the Savior of the world. And that's what Luke is doing. And he's closing off this section of his gospel which is the introduction, really. Remember we said Luke 19.30, or sorry, 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you can outline the book of Luke that way. The Son of Man came, chapter 1 to 4.13, to seek. Okay, that's the chapter, middle of chapter 4 to chapter 21, and to save the lost, chapters 22 to 24, 
in his passion and resurrection. So that's what we see. We're, we're coming to the conclusion now where Luke has built up the credentials of Jesus, the resume of Jesus to say in so many different ways, this one is the hope for humanity. This is the hope for Israel. This is the hope for the Davidic kingdom. This is the hope for every human who's connected to Adam, which is everyone. And so here is his closing arguments. This is like the final exam for Jesus to show he's qualified to be the savior of the world. So let's consider first the first temptation. And here we see uh, that, that Jesus is trusting the provision of God as a better Israel. Trusting the provision of God as the better Israel in verses one to four. Now, what you'll see as we look at each of these temptations is there's a threefold pattern that repeats. There is the setting that's given for the temptation. Then there's the solicitation by Satan where he presents the temptation. And then there's the scriptural quotation by Jesus in combating that temptation that concludes it. And then the next section repeats that threefold cycle. So we'll use that as we uh, look at each of these temptations. So the first is the setting, the setting. And we look at verses one and two again. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. Here's the setting. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's indwelt by the Spirit. He's empowered by the Spirit. He's being completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. And that's what's going to be true of him for his entire life and ministry. Now, remember the context in that, yes, we looked at the genealogy last week, but that's Luke's insertion. What happened just prior to this for Jesus was his baptism. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan and that Trinitarian affirmation of Jesus in that Jesus comes to be baptized, then the Spirit descends upon him on, as a dove, and then the Father's affirmation when he says, you are my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased. And so we see this affirmation that he is in fact the Son, the Spirit resides upon him, and John is saying, or Luke is saying, after that, after returning from the Jordan, so he's been baptized, now being empowered by the Spirit, he is led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and there he will be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Now, he is led there, and Mark is more forceful in saying this. In Mark 1.12, it says, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. What, what the author's and the Gospels are trying to communicate to us is this is God's will. This wasn't an accident that he's in the wilderness, that he's going to be tempted. This is part of God's will. God doesn't tempt anyone, and yet it's interesting in the New Testament, the word for tempt and test are the same word. And, and it's helpful to, to realize that because there are different intentionalities in these things. So God may test his servants. I mean, think of Abraham. Abraham tested, uh, or sorry, uh, Yahweh tested Abraham in uh, Genesis 22. Now, did God need to learn something about Abraham? No. This is for Abraham's benefit. And what was God's intention? That Abraham passes the test and shows that he does have faith in God and for his progeny as well. And so, what is God's intention in directing Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by the devil? Well, it's a test 
according to God because God knows he's going to pass the test and show that he is a faithful representative for his people. But what is Satan's intention? It is to cause the end of salvation history because he's hoping to derail the Son of Man, the Son of God, in getting him to sin. And you think, well, does Satan really think that he can do this? I mean, what is going on here? And it's hard to say for sure because the text doesn't tell us, but think about it. I mean, Satan has been successful in getting a sinless man to sin before, a man who had never sinned before. He was successful to get that guy to sin. And so here he goes, round two. Let's try this again. And so he's sent there into the wilderness. Now, this wilderness area is one of the most desolate places. R. Kent Hughes calls it an anti-Eden, the anti-Eden. But there's a number of contrasts that we can see, even though this first point really focuses upon Jesus as a, a better Israel, all of these are permeated with uh, comparisons to Adam. And, and we see that if we compare Jesus' temptation with Adam's temptation, we see that Adam was surrounded by beauty in the garden. Jesus is surrounded by barrenness in the wilderness. Adam, with the companionship of his wife, Jesus all alone. Adam, with his belly full, Jesus with incredible hunger. Adam is full of life, therefore. Jesus is at the verge of death. He will be closer to death in this circumstance than he will ever be before his crucifixion. Adam is in a very good, unfallen world. Jesus is in the cursed creation, marred by sin. And whereas Adam is tempted in, by the devil and he's, he falls at the first temptation, here we see Jesus throughout 40 days being tempted and he is triumphant. Now the grammar has it such that it seems as though uh, the best way to take this is Jesus is being tempted throughout the whole 40 days and not just these three temptations. So if you ever get Trivial Pursuit uh, that's really persnickety about the text, and they might say, how many times is Jesus tempted? And if you say three, you might be wrong because Jesus is tempted throughout this whole 40-day period. These are probably the highlights of the last culminating temptations that happen. So he's, he's in the wilderness being tempted. That's the way to take this. And so this is intense temptation. Sometimes we can think of Jesus' temptations as easier for him than ours. Like, oh, well, he's God, so... This is like Superman getting shot with a bullet, right? Uh, but that's the wrong way to think about it. Yes, we believe in the impeccability of Christ, which is that he could not have sinned. Uh, and yet, we understand that in his human nature, he is being genuinely tempted. Yes, he, he is different than us, and he has no sin nature. I heard one um, writer once put it in a really helpful way. The difference between our temptation and Jesus' temptation, though they have similarities, is that Jesus has no sinful nature to draw him to sin like we do. Like, then they said, Jesus had no landing pad for sin in his heart. You think for us, we've got a welcome landing pad for all kind of desires that are sinful. So for us, not always, but it's possible that a temptation to sin for us could be sinful. Sometimes we'll say things like, well, it's not sinful to be tempted. Well, possibly, like you... It, yeah, most of the time, no, uh, just to say to be tempted. But it is possible in the very nature of the thing, if that thing is 
is causing your heart to desire things that God would never allow, then yes, the temptation is sinful. And Jesus had no possibility for that kind of temptation because he had nothing within his heart to draw him towards something that God would never allow. And so his temptations largely are external to him. And yet, lest we think Jesus' temptations are any less for him, rather they are far greater than our temptations. Well, why, why would we say that? Well, because when you are tempted and you give in to your sin, really the temptation goes away. It's like the pressure release valve. But Jesus never gives in to temptation. And so he feels the full force of sin throughout the entirety of his life. It, it's like, you know, bearing the weight of, uh, you know, when a bodybuilder's holding up this intense weight and they're holding it. Well, once they let go of that weight, it, the, the pressure is gone. But Jesus continues to face the full force of temptation's fury by never giving in. And so he experiences the, the range of ways that we could be tempted. Of course, when we say that Jesus is tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin, we mean every kind of sin, every kind of temptation. We don't mean um, the sense of like, you know, Jesus couldn't be tempted with the internet, you know, because there wasn't the internet, right? Or he couldn't be tempted with, you know, certain things unique to being old or being married. But nevertheless, in the full range of categories of temptation, he is absolutely tempted in all those ways. And we see that even here in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But Jesus is experiencing this full, full force of temptation from the devil. And it doesn't end here, though this is an intense time of temptation. He continues to be uh, tempted by the devil later. Peter will come to him and virtually say the same thing that Satan says and saying, Lord, you can't die. You can't go to the cross. And what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan, which is what he says here in Matthew's account. And so he's going to continue to face these kinds of things. And so he faces the full force of temptation. One writer said, Genesis 3 depicts the fall of man. Luke 4 reports the standing of man. Here's the standing of the Son of God in the face of temptation. And so Adam fails in the best of circumstances in the garden without sin. Here is Jesus triumphing in the most hostile of circumstances. But notice another feature of what's happening. It says that he's in the wilderness for 40 days. For 40 days. Remember that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Numbers chapter 14, verse 33. Wandering around. Israel is called God's son in Exodus 4, 22 and Hosea 11, 1. And so Jesus has just been called God's son. Showing that he is a representative. He is He's the ultimate son. And so we see here Jesus as the ultimate Israelite who obeys and trusts God to meet his needs instead of doubting his father's love. Now you go, okay, well, yeah, 40 days in the wilderness. Okay, Israel was in the wilderness and they were there for 40 years. Okay, I see that. But how else do we know that, what, what other arrows are there? Well, if you notice, Jesus will quote in response to this temptation from Deuteronomy 8, which is talking about the time when Israel is in the wilderness and they're complaining about food and God's provision for them. So it's the exact same context. And so here Jesus, in a similar way, as a son of God, enters into the same place to be 
tried in a similar way, and yet he is successful. Now, you have to love the understatement of Luke. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Maybe 40 days without food, and of course, this is like Genesis 1. It's like, and, and, and the stars. You know, it's like when he creates the world, it's like, oh yeah, and the stars. And you're like, what, and the stars? Just a little throwaway line, you know, not throwaway, but you know what I mean, you know, just quick line. But that is where Satan picks up on this solicitation. So that's the setting of this first one. Then it's the solicitation by Satan. Look at verse 3. He says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. He, he picks up on this idea of the son of God because God has just told him, you are my son. And the way this is structured is he's not casting doubt on the son of God, uh, on that he is the son of God. It's rather the idea probably that since you're the son of God, do this, act this way. In fact, what you'll find is the demons get their theology pretty correct throughout, um, throughout the ministry of Jesus. I don't know if you've heard of ChatGPT, this uh, AI uh, technology, but um, uh, some friends of mine have, have done more with it than I have, and some of them ask like theology questions to it. And not always, but sometimes ChatGPT is, is kind of orthodox. It'll be like, well, Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God, truly God, truly man. You're like, yeah, that's great. And that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You're like, okay, great. Believes in the solace. ChatGPT believes in the solace. And so they, it gets some things right. Now, not everything, but... Um, uh, and Elon Musk was like, we shouldn't do it for six months because we're, you know, because Skynet's going to become self-aware. I don't know. No, he didn't say that. But, but they are like, okay, what do we do? This thing is really getting out of control. But my point is, um, here's this AI thing that has some theology correct. Well, Satan and his demons have a lot of theology that is correct. They, they know he is the son of God. And they are right in that fact. And so what is Satan doing here? He's not questioning that he's the son of God, but what he is doing is, he is questioning the way Jesus is being treated if he is, in fact, the Son of God. Because you wonder, what is the issue here? Because is it a sin to eat when you're hungry? No, of course not. But even more, for Jesus, is it a sin for Jesus to create food? No, because he will do that. He will create food for over 5,000 people, and then 4,000, over 4,000 on another occasion. So it is no problem for Jesus to do these things, and he'll turn water into wine. So, okay, what's the issue then? What is the specific temptation? And I think the issue comes in the word command. Command this stone. I think it's the temptation for Jesus here is to doubt God's provision for him as the Son of God. Alan Thompson says, The temptation is to doubt the Father's provision and use his power independently of his obedient sonship. I think it's like this. Satan is saying, since you're God's son, how come your father is treating you like this? You should create some bread for yourself. Does the father really love you? I mean, you're his son, but look at you, wasting away here. This is after those 40 days. This is the culmination of that time. God must be stingy. 
He must be holding out on you. I mean, what does this sound like? This sounds like the garden. You know, calling into question God's goodness, making God seem stingy because you can't eat from this one tree. You, never, the, never, never mind the fact that you have all of the creation to enjoy, to subdue, all these foods to enjoy, great delight, the presence of God, one prohibition. And yet, Satan is able to take that one prohibition and turn that around to make God seem like the ultimate stingy killjoy. This is the lust of the flesh. God is holding out on you. Why would he withhold this from you? Are you ever tempted to think this way because of your circumstances? You know, if I'm, if I'm one of God's children, why is this happening to me? Why am I in this circumstance? And Satan's going, yeah, yeah, why are you in this circumstance? Why is this happening to you? God must not love you. You know, you must just take things in your own hands because it just seems like God's left you. Because why would he put you in this circumstance if you're his child? And that's what's happening here. This is the solicitation of Satan. And then we see the, the scriptural support. Jesus responds with scripture. He says, it is written. And the particular passage he goes to is in Deuteronomy 8. We said already the context is Israel, um, looking back on Israel's history and how the first generation coming out of Egypt was tempted in the wilderness. They were tested and they lacked food and they grumbled and complained against God. Yet here, Jesus acts differently. He trusts in God. And he says, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Matthew quotes the rest of this, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is, in other words, satisfied with God's will for him and God's word. Jesus said in John 4, 34, Jesus said to, him, to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And Job 23, 12 says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Now, Jesus knew that the Holy Spirit had been leading him in the wilderness and this was God's word for the time. Think of God's word here. It lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Father as not just scripture, but really indicating God's will for his life. Like if, God, if God's word is that he have food at this time, then God will make it happen. And so Jesus is saying, I'm depending upon God's will. God is, of course, determined at this point that it's not time for me to do this, to have food. And so I trust God in that. He would continue to live by God's word and will and not assert his own will. Or Kent Hughes says, in essence, by alluding to Deuteronomy, Jesus was saying, I will not complain, neither will I take matters into my own hands. My Father has not willed to immediately provide bread, but I will trust him and his word. In doing this, Jesus demonstrated that no need would ever drive him to draw back from his humble human existence as a real man who lives by trusting God's word. And so we may be tempted to doubt God's love based on our circumstances, just as Jesus was, even if they're extremely difficult, Satan whispers the same line to our ears. Here Jesus trusts the will of God and the timing of God for his needs. As the ultimate Israelite, Jesus trusts God's provision in the wilderness. And so we see this first temptation, and we see Jesus trusting the provision of God as the better Israel. 
Secondly, we see in the second temptation, Jesus trusting the plan of God as the better David. Trusting the plan of God as the better David. In verses 5 to 8. And here we see the setting again, the setting. Look at verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He takes him up. The other gospels say it to a high mountain. We don't know what mountain this was. The devil shows him in some way, and it's hard to say for sure, but maybe in some kind of vision because he's showing him all the kingdoms and their glories in a moment of time. Something special is happening here. And this is setting up for the second temptation, the lust of the eyes. And so that's the setting. Then we have the solicitation by Satan. Look at verses 6 and 7. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. But what's going on here? Is Satan, is Satan like writing a check that he can't cash? Does he have the ability to offer this to Jesus, the nations in their glory? Is, he, is it correct that Satan has some kind of authority that he can deliver? Well, it's good always in these instances to compare Scripture with Scripture. What do other passages say? Well, Jesus does refer to Satan on three occasions in John's gospel as the ruler of this world. Paul refers to Satan as the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. John the apostle wrote that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Daniel 10 verse 13 speaks about this uh, angelic, demonic being who is, who is influencing the king of Persia. And there's another angel doing battle with them. And you're like, whoa, this is like behind the scenes, sneak peek. And, but we see also that Satan is influencing uh, kings and, and rulers at times in history. You see that in Isaiah and Ezekiel. In fact, the, the two passages we often derive a lot of our theology about Satan from come from Isaiah and Ezekiel. And they're in the context of a human king, most likely, who is being empowered by Satan and has a lot of parallels to Satan. And then finally, in Revelation 13, 2, John writes this, And to it, that's the beast, which is the Antichrist, and to the Antichrist, the dragon, which represents Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. So during this time in the future, this tribulation time, what happens is Satan gives authority to this figure, this human leader, to exercise authority over the world. He's empowering him kind of gives you some perspective when you look around at the world and you see incredible evil and you see in different places and different times in history uh, gr- leaders who are so wicked and as a Christian you go well I have a category for that that I don't know for certain how this all works out but I certainly have examples in scripture where Satan is empowering leaders to do wickedness and so yes in some sense the devil has influence in our present world in our present world system. And yet, the scriptures are equally clear that God is sovereign at all times. In fact, it is essential to his essence to be king and to be sovereign. And so, yes, God is sovereign over all, and we might say, as Luther did, Satan is God's Satan. He's sovereign over him. And yet, there is some sense of permission given to Satan in this world. And this is part of the reason Jesus came, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But still, why this temptation for Jesus? 
<laughs> okay, haven't the nations already been promised to Jesus? And the answer is yes. <laughs> they have. Psalm 2. We studied this psalm a while back. Messianic psalm. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So it seems like the Father's promised these nations to the Son. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. It has the same, whereas the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days, the Father, and he's given a kingdom. So, okay, Jesus already has promised to him the nations to rule over. So why does the devil offer these to him? And at the cost of worshiping the devil, like, okay, you can have it all. Satan worship, this is what you need to do. So what is the temptation here? What is appealing to this, about this, for the Son of God? I think the issue is this, that it is to bypass the plan of God. It is to take a shortcut. To put it this way, it is to have the crown without the cross. That's what's being offered. Jesus, though, must redeem before he comes to reign. If any of us have any hope of being in that reign. And Jesus will, and, and the authors of Scripture often speak this way, that it was necessary that the Christ must first suffer and then enter into his glory. That's the pattern. That's the order that's repeated time and again. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he gives the scriptural support again. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, a massively important chapter. People think that Deuteronomy is Jesus' favorite book because he quotes from it so much, and especially in this time. You be the judge. I report. You decide. Uh, he quotes from Deuteronomy 16 about worshiping God alone. Now, here's an interesting footnote for you, and just put this in your back pocket for evangelistic encounters with people who don't believe that Jesus is truly God. So, Jesus, Satan says, worship me. Like, everyone knows, okay, that's not a good thing. I think everyone agrees, don't worship Satan. But then, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, he says, you shall worship, proskuneo, God alone. Satan says, you he uses this word for worship, proskuneo, and that's what Satan wants. Jesus says, no, you only worship God. Him alone. He actually adds the word alone. Him only do you worship. But then, the only other time Luke uses proskuneo is in chapter 24, verse 52. And it says this. Luke says, and they worshiped him, that's Jesus, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. So I thought you were supposed to only worship God. Correct. Conclusion, Jesus is God. He is the second person of the triune God. And so that's one example of how Jesus receives the worship that's alone due to God, therefore showing us his very nature. So worship is the highest priority, even more than ruling the world. And the temptation was to elevate something else over God, and this would have been idolatry. It was to pursue God's will apart from the means that God approves. And Peter will later give a similar temptation. Lord, no, you can't go to die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Later in the garden, Jesus will pray that if it's possible for this cup of wrath to pass from him, oh Lord, let it be so. But he says, but not my will, but your will be done. So he submits his human will to the divine will. 
He trusts the plan despite the pain it is going to bring. He's not worried so much about the physical pain, though that would have been significant. It is the bearing eternities of wrath upon himself in his person in those hours on the cross. Now, was this not the same challenge that David faced as he was in that cave with Saul and had the opportune time as he's running away in the wilderness, 1 Samuel 24. Remember where David was, the setting. He is in the wilderness, chapters 24 to 26 of 1 Samuel. And what was the solicitation? David has his men saying, the Lord is giving your enemy into your hands, David. Here is Saul. And not only that, David has already been anointed to king. He, and he's also been told that the kingdom is his. He is going to be king. It's been promised to him. David, here it is. Take this guy out. He doesn't even know. Walk up to him. Cut his head off. Whatever. Take the kingdom. It's God's will for your life. Because it actually is. David is going to be king. But you cannot pursue the will of God in a way that's contrary to the methods of God. And so, David gives the scripture, which he does not quoting a scripture, but David knows you shall not touch the Lord's anointed. David, Saul has been specially set aside for this time. God will remove him when he decides to. This is the plan of God. Yeah, David did cut a part of his, his robe off and he felt guilty for it. He felt guilty, conviction. And so you, do you see Luke's connection to David with Jesus? There's another connection actually, very subtle. Micah 1.15 says that when Assyria comes, the descendants of David are gonna have to flee to Adullam. Remember, David spent some time in the cave of Adullam. That was in the wilderness. And so what, what Micah is saying is the descendants of David are going to have to go into the wilderness just like David went into the wilderness. And that's where they're going to be. So what happens? Jesus, the descendant of David, enters into the wilderness. And in that time, he's tempted in virtually the exact same way. David, you can be king right now. Just kill this guy. Jesus, you can have the kingdoms right now. Just bypass the cross, and they can be yours. And you can take the throne. And yet, he refuses. Here, the ultimate descendant of David has been led by the Spirit to the wilderness to resurrect the Davidic line, to restart the Davidic line that has gone dormant. But this Davidic descendant will fulfill God's will in God's way. So once again, our strong Savior stands sinless against Satan's sinister solicitations. And followers of Christ, we have the same pathway to walk, the cross before the crown. The cross of suffering comes before the crown of triumph. And we cannot take the shortcut, though it may seem expedient. We can't use methods that dishonor God to do something that we convince ourselves is God's will. To be very careful, pray for discernment, wisdom, in such circumstances. Let's look at the final temptation. It is trusting the promise of God as a better Adam. Trusting the promise of God as the better Adam. Verses 9 to 13. Here's the setting, verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, oh, sorry, that's getting too ahead. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, in Matthew and Luke, there's a switched order the second and third temptations are switched. 
Um, it's hard to know exactly why that is. Maybe Luke has a very significant role of the temple and he ends with the temple. It's hard to say for sure. Uh, either way, Satan is taking him here of this, in Luke, the last temptation, and he takes him to the, it's called like the wing or the pinnacle of the temple. Most people think it's this corner of the temple that looks down on the Kidron Valley and would be hundreds of feet below, a big, big drop off. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that when you stood there, it made you dizzy looking down because it was such a, a high height. But why bring him here? Why not just, I mean, think about this. If it's jump off and let the angels get you, why take him to the Jerusalem temple? Why not anywhere? Why not any high place? Well, it actually has to do with the psalm that the devil is going to quote. And so this leads to the solicitation by Satan, verses 9 to 11. If you are the son of, man, son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan, he, Jesus has quoted scripture twice to Satan. So Satan goes, okay, you want to do that? I'll quote some scripture now. So now Satan quotes a passage of scripture, and he knows the Bible. He knows what it says. He knows what it means. He just hates it. Psalm 91, arguably, is a messianic psalm that fits the Messiah more than any other individual. It, is, it promises protection of the Messiah who remain close to him. It highlights being close to God, being in God's dwelling place. And you think, where on earth at this time is the presence of God more clearly manifest than any other place? The temple. So if God is going to protect his, his people, and even more so, his Messiah, his son, where's the most likely place that that's for sure going to happen? In the very presence of God, in the temple of God, at the temple of God. And so this is why Satan takes him there. And I um, think, uh, well, listen to this. We don't have time to read Psalm 91. You can do that. James Hamilton has this great just summary of the message of Psalm 91 as it connects to Jesus. He says this, quote, No one more epitomizes Psalm 91 than Jesus. No one lived more in God's presence, more inhabited the shelter of the Most High, the shadow of the Almighty. No one took refuge in God like Jesus, was delivered like Jesus, and trampled the dragon like Jesus. No one loved God or knew God's name like Jesus. No one called on God like Jesus, experienced God's presence in distress like Jesus, or was delivered even from death like Jesus. No one will be more glorified by God than Jesus, who has received the name above every name, and no one will be more satisfied than Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything stated in Psalm 91. And so it's as if Satan might be saying, hey, this is a passage about you. So, if God has promised to protect you and for the angels to bear you up so you don't even stub your toe, then show it. Prove it. Have God fulfill his promise for you. I mean, he did promise, didn't he? Jump. The leap of faith. The ultimate leap of faith. Now, this is truly a subtle temptation. And I think the nature of the temptation is seen in how Jesus responds to it. The scriptural support then comes in verse 12. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, God made this promise in Psalm 91, 
And the devil is calling on Jesus to force God's hand to prove his promise. So where does Jesus quote from? Deuteronomy. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, again, that you should not, the law of God says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I mean, Deuteronomy is about loving God. And God has loved us, his people, and therefore we love him. And we do that by following his law, obeying him. And here's one of those laws. It's to not put God to the test. One writer said this, testing God is not trusting him. This is an example of the boastful pride of life. It's been said, we we do not dictate to God the specific way he must fulfill his promises. And that's what's being demanded of him. He's saying, well, God promised this, so you force his hand to show that he will fulfill this promise. That's not the way we live. Darrell Davis says this in his commentary on Luke. He says, quote, God can be trusted when he is not sensational. Faith is not demanding the spectacular, but remaining content with the ordinary. Jesus is saying, yes, God's made this promise, but it's for God to determine when he'll fulfill that promise. It's not for me to jump and force God to act. But there's something else going on here because what Jesus is doing is he quotes from the law and implicitly places himself under the law. His view is that he is to be a law keeper just like he will be a law giver when we get to the sermon on the plane. And he is going to give out the law, but he is also putting himself under the law because he's going to obey where Adam failed. And so he quotes this statement to say, this is what I'm submitting to. I am submitting to the law of God. God will fulfill his promise in his time, but I'm placing myself under the authority of the law. This is what we need from him. We need a new and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. We need this one who will place himself under the law of God in all of its manifestations through history and obey at every point as a new representative for us. You can see the law is requiring a standard that we cannot keep. The confessions say that the law requires perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Peep. Okay, it's almost Easter, so they're selling peeps. I don't know if you like peeps, uh, but uh, this will maybe help you remember this. What is required for salvation? You have to have perfect, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. Maybe you'll never look at peeps the same. Uh, But here we see Jesus obeying the law perfectly, entirely, exactly, and perpetually throughout his life on behalf of us. Jesus knit a robe of righteousness through the course of his life as he obeyed the transcendental law of God at every point so that he might gift that to us. So that though we are sinners, we might be simultaneously viewed as righteous in the sight of God. And so here's the triumph of the Son of God in his temptations as the better Israel, the better David, and the better Adam. The devil now departs until a later time. It says in verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, probably meaning that the entirety of those 40 days, he departed from him until an opportune time. So he's not over, but this battle has been lost. Satan will continue to tempt him, bringing others in to tempt him as well. 
each of the temptations here seek to drive a wedge into the relationship of the son and the father, and yet at each point it fails. You see, one of the last things that Jesus is, Satan is tempting Jesus to do in this final temptation is to not act as a man and not act as one under the law for those who need him to act under the law. It's to say, just act according to your divine nature as the son and, and jump off and you'll be saved. But that is not what we need. We need one who is tempted in his human nature and obeys in his human nature for us so that we might be righteous. When we were in South Atlanta, we, uh, we lived about 25 minutes from the airport, uh, Atlanta airport. And so, like, I used to joke that half of our church worked at Delta and, uh, and the other half worked at Chick-fil-A corporate <laughs> because Chick-fil-A's headquarters were about 25 minutes from there. That wasn't true, but we had a lot of people who worked at Chick-fil-A corporate. And one of the things I took away and remembered, get, got to visit that corporate headquarters a number of times and just uh, incredible spot and really neat. But um, uh, I, I learned that they have so many interviews if you're going to get a job there. It's just like, they're, they're, I always got walked away from the sense that like, there's just interview after interview after interview to get the job, and you finally get it. And, it, and it's, of course, they want to get the right person for the job uh, if they're going to work there at the corporate headquarters. And I think Luke would appreciate that. I think Luke would appreciate all those interviews because what he has done in these four chapters is to give us one after another of the credentials of Jesus, of the resume of Jesus. Let me bring over this example. Let me bring over this example. You have the two miraculous births. You have the testimonies of Zechariah, Elizabeth, of Mary. You have Simeon and Anna in the temple. You have uh, Jesus' genealogy, which shows his credentials there. You have the testimony of the triune God. You have John the Baptist's testimony. And then finally, you have the final test where he goes into the wilderness and he succeeds. He triumphs where these individuals and people have failed before and here he comes out successful, showing us, yes, this one is the man for the job. This is the man who can redeem us from our sins. This is the man who can re represent us. Only Jesus qualifies, and therefore, only Jesus is the proper object of your faith. Only Jesus is the proper object of saving faith and trust. The only one that can save you. And that's why Luke goes out of his way here to show to a Gentile ruler, Theophilus, this guy's trustworthy. I want you to have the assurance of your faith. That's the purpose of Luke's gospel. How does he do it? He builds up Jesus to show this, is, this and this man only is your hope. You know, one of the most practical ways to resist temptation is by a superior satisfaction in the Son of God. There's a lot of principles here to take away. Use scripture, right? Remember that we're often tempted in a special way after a high point in our lives. Jesus baptized the Father's affirmation and then boom, into the wilderness. A lot of great temptations, knowing the devil's tactics, knowing the, these categories of temptation, lots of things to take away. But I think the most significant is what Luke does for us. His main point is to make us walk away going, Jesus is amazing. He's amazing. Look at his fulfillment in all of these ways. He's so worth my worship and as the object of my faith. And I'll, I'll tell you this, sadly, sometimes when we're trying to grow, we focus so much on memorize this scripture, memorize that scripture, and we can forget the main goal is to be satisfied in Christ. And so if we are filled up and satisfied with who he is for us in the pages of scripture, then we go, I don't want that sin because I want him more. 
And so what Luke does is one of those practical things he could do is to show us the Son of God triumphing where we fail so that we go, oh, he's so good. I love him for his love for me and what he's done for me. And so now I want to say yes to the Lord and no to my temptation. And so yes, take those principles, but look to the Son of God who triumphs on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son in the likeness of man, as a man, born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. Thank you for his representative work and his perfection at every point that we are tempted and yet without sin. Lord, there's so many extra applications here of the sympathy of the Son of Man as we are tempted. He knows what it is to be tempted. And so he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. Lord, for us who know you, may you increase our love for Christ. May it cause us to loosen the grip on things that we desire that are contrary to your will for us and that we might hold fast to Christ through this fresh sight of him. And Lord, for those who don't know you, may they be utterly hopeless apart from coming to Christ in faith. And may they find you to be a more than willing savior for sinners. One who will redeem those who, who has redeemed those who are his and will bring them in perfect time to him and that he will welcome any who will come to him in faith. And so Lord, we thank you again for this great triumphant Christ who comes to reign when he returns having redeemed a people for you, Lord. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.